We'd really like to talk about something other than the coronavirus one of these days, but it is the big story and we have to keep addressing it. It's all around us. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer for Friday the 13th. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Warnowski. Happy Friday the 13th. (laughs) Happy Friday. Happy Happy Friday. Okay, let's start. It's the story of the moment, so let's end the week by starting with it. What is the new one-day record for coronavirus cases in Ohio? How many counties are on red alert, and how much did student cases rise in the Ohio schools in the latest report? Jane Cahoon, the numbers just keep going up and up and up and up. Yeah, we're like a broken record talking about the broken records, right? The um, the number of newly reported cases on Thursday was 7,101, a new record again. The previous record was just Tuesday when there were 6,508. And, you know, Rich Exner documented this, like how fast we're getting from like, you know, another 50,000 cases and so forth. The case total has shot up from 155,314 on October 1st to 274,457. We had 76 new deaths on Wednesday for a total of over 5,600 hospitalizations spiking to record levels, although we do still have capacity. Um, we, we have a record 68 counties now on the red alert system, including every county in Northeast Ohio. There were 56 of those last week. Nobody's purple yet or on the purple watch list, but you know, this is still terrible. 19 counties this week were at the level two orange and only one Noble County was at the lowest level of yellow. As for the schools you asked about, the weekly increase in the K to 12 case numbers uh, went up by over 67, or I'm sorry, 1,600 and, uh, and over a thousand new staff cases, 1,600 for student cases, over a thousand for new staff cases. And uh, last last week, uh, that number was a thousand and seventy eight for students and seven hundred and sixty nine for for staff. So yeah, I, I hate to tell you, Laura Johnston, but I, I think the day is coming when all the kids <laughs> are going to be home for the winter. I, you're hearing it. The schools are starting to talk about it. They know that they're going to be spreaders and they don't want to be as much as they know how important it is to have kids in the classroom. What, what suddenly seems to be happening is, and we talked about this a little before we started, so let's repeat it here, that that there's a, de- there's a serious debate going on about what's causing this. We saw the nature study we discussed earlier this week that kind of pointed at restaurants, bars, and health clubs where people are indoors taking their masks off, spreading there. But when you start talking about closing restaurants, the restaurant owners, especially in Ohio, saying, we don't have any data to show that in Ohio. We think it's small family gatherings. And the Washington Post had a story yesterday saying that there's some data to support that they're family gatherings. So you're getting these conflicting factions starting to go at each other because we don't have the data. And why don't we have the data? Because health departments in Ohio have not done anything to figure it out. <laughs> and that's kind of, a, we're, we're at the moment now where it's all cascading. The, the, we are in free fall. The numbers are just shooting up. 7,000. It's just, I use this word all the time, but it's unthinkable that we're at 7,000. We're going to get to 10. And we don't know why. We, we sit here today all talking to each other about the biggest story of the year outside the presidential election. And we don't know why. 
Are we now? Are we certain they're not collecting the data and they're not and they're just not giving it to us? I mean, do we know for a fact that that this well, is not something that they're trying to get to the bottom, or is there or is there some suspicion that they're not giving it to us for some reason? I, I know this that we we thought they were collecting the data all along the, through contact tracing, and we did a long negotiation and battle with the state. It took months to resolve, and it resolved with a the answer that they weren't asking those questions through uh, as late as a month ago that they, that when contact tracers talk to people, they'd say, okay, you got it. Who have you been with since you got it? And then they would go to those people to try, try and stop it from spreading. But they didn't say, where have you been? Were you at a grocery store? Were you at a school? Were you at a church? Did you get together with people outside your bubble? They weren't asking it. They, 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 there was some tiny percentage where people volunteered it, and it was like 2% of the cases had notes to that effect, but it wasn't anything you would need to do an analysis. Now, once they discovered that, once they were they came forward, they said, well, you know, Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer, you raised a good question. We're going to start asking for that. But whether they've actually sent directives to local health departments with new questions to add to the contact tracing, it's not clear. We're going to try and find it out. What throws me, Chris, though, you know, okay, we have 7,100 people that were tested positive yesterday. Just go ask them. You know, you don't have to do everybody. Go ask the 7,100 people, where have you been? Then you'd have the beginning of patterns that you might be able to understand. Because right now, we don't know. it. You know, there, there's we keep being told these family gatherings, these family gatherings. Does anybody on this on this podcast think that family gatherings have increased sevenfold in five weeks? I mean, that's preposterous, right? It, no. And but the thing is, Dwight stood up there yesterday and said, we have data that it's spreading at bars and restaurants. And then it's like, well, where's the data? I mean, that was even one of the questions uh, that a journalist well, posed. But I do think, Laura, he's probably basing that on the nature study, which which was great, right? I mean, they took cell phone locations, big data, massive data, hard to dispute it. And it really did pretty much conclusively show, not not in Ohio, but where they did the, the data, that it's spreading in bars, restaurants, and health clubs. I mean, so so when he says, look, I'm basing this on data, he might be basing that on that data. And that's good. You want the governor to work on real data but you're but you're right he should have said this is the data i'm talking about yeah he's, he didn't specify he just kind of kept talking around it yeah yeah but, that, but i mean it's but it's been like the whole time you know i mean this this whole time it's been a lot of like we'll get back to you and a lot of vagueness around you know trying to sort of dig down to the why and how all of this continues to happen and and you know i i feel like what that has done is allowed, you know, the restaurant industry and, and, and people like, like people to just basically point fingers at everybody at everyone else and say, well, it can't be us. You know, it's not us. It's not, it's not religious gatherings. It's not sports gatherings. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this. And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, I think the answer is going to be, it's probably all of it. You know, it's, it's everything. It's kids going back to school, restarting high school sports, opening up, you know, football games, you know, you know, it's going to be all of it. And, and I feel like, you know, once we get, once we blow past the blame game here and trying to figure out who, who did what to, to whom, you know, I feel like we're really going to actually start to deal with the, the, the problem, which is this pandemic is back. You know, we're, we're back to talking about it every day. We're back to well, 
this being the thing that's that's the most important thing in our life that we need to be dealing with. And, you know, and if history shows, it's going to be just like 1918 and the winter's going to be a disaster. So, But we're out of time, Chris. I yeah, mean, you're, yeah. you're saying, you know, once we get past the blame game, it's upon us. The next three months are going to be terrible and we don't know why. I, I do get back to what we've talked about in the past, that there's probably a good chance that it's in the workplace. It's in the places where people have to go to work and in the air handling systems. And nobody wants to admit that because if you acknowledge that's what's causing it, you got to shut it down. And that cripples the economy. And so everybody's got their head in the sand. I, we've wondered from the beginning, why don't you want to know? why it's spreading. Why don't you do the work? We, you, you have the cohort of people. Go talk to them. Ask them where they've been. And, you know, you're playing on memory. I mean, if I asked you guys right now where you've been every day for the last two weeks, I don't know. You probably can answer because you've been home every day. Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> wouldn't be too hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's a, it was a bad day. I expect we'll break another record today or tomorrow. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With hospitals repeatedly telling us that they don't fear a capacity problem despite the coronavirus surge, why are some, including the Cleveland Clinic, cutting back on some procedures and visitation and taking the steps they took at the beginning of the pandemic? Chris Ranowski, I, I find it a little bit surprising that they keep telling us there's not a capacity problem when we see the upward surge that we do, that simple math says eventually you're going to run out of capacity because the numbers show no signs of abating. But they keep telling us it's not a capacity problem. So why these latest steps? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, these decisions that these hospitals made over the past couple of days. I'll, I'll run through them really quick, but they they do kind of seem like a foreshadowing of something, something sort of worse that might be to come. Um, the, as the hospitalizations continue to rise, some of the hospital systems here in Northeast Ohio are sort of pulling back on a few different things. Like, uh, for example, the Cleveland Clinic said it's going to postpone some non-essential surgery scheduled for Friday and Monday. And they have left open the possibility that they would uh, delay or postpone uh, more procedures in the future. And Mercy Medical Center in Canton announced Thursday that it's immediately prohibiting visitors to the hospital until further notice, while uh, Summa Health announced that it would begin uh, restricting visitors this Friday as well. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting that the, we've gone on quite a journey with hospitals this week because, you know, we heard from the heads of, of four major hospital systems this week. And, you know, their response to, to what's happening was sort of a mix of it's not bad, but also some an undercurrent of like, yeah, it's pretty bad. And and so, you know, we're you know, the the hospitalizations just continue to go up, you know, and as as we burst through records every every other day, it seems like, you know, it, you have to wonder, like, you know, what what the next step is for these medical like are you know, when are, what else are they going to start cutting back? And what other restrictions are they going to add? And, and again, it's also a bad position for these hospitals, you know, I mean, you know, in a for-profit medical system, when you have to shut down things like major surgeries or non-essential surgeries, it does sort of cut into your ability to operate. So, right. You lose a fortune. Right. Yeah. And, and so places like Cleveland Clinic have, have, it's, it's weird for places like that to suffer during what is the largest health crisis in, in modern American history. But, but yeah, they, they do suffer. So, you know, I, I think there are probably a lot of financial realities that they're sort of having to weigh against whether or not they shut down or not. So, you know, 
So yeah, this looks bad. In a crisis like this, one of the things that that should give people some solace is a is a steadiness of the hand of the leadership. And in this respect, I do think there is some of that. If you'll recall, Mike DeWine, when he originally issued all his shutdown orders and took all those bold steps, everything was about preserving the capacity of hospitals to treat people who get the virus because what happened in Italy, they were overrun, they couldn't treat everybody, people died left and right. And it's, it, I find it interesting that what's driving him this week to take some solid steps and foretell others is the hospital capacity because mm-hmm. our death rate, you know, we have people dying. There's a lot of people that have died, but the death rate has not, the number of deaths has not risen commensurate with the cases or the hospitalizations. But if the hospitals can no longer treat people, that will change in a snap of the fingers. And so doing things that will help slow the virus to preserve capacity is is what this has been about. Remember, that's what Amy Acton, when she was health director, kept saying, look, this is about hospital capacity. We have got to keep the hospitals clear to treat people who get sick. Well, can I ask? I mean, it's 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 interesting that we haven't done you know, we've gone through I mean, this is I, I would call this like our second big spike. I think we there's some debate over whether there's three spikes, but I just, you know, none of these waves which, have ever really just, just for a sec, That's bizarre to me. I don't right. understand where the second one was. I don't know. But. I don't either. But but it's we knew something like this was a possibility. And 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 I know this seems like really pie in the sky. But, you know, we have we have all of these various medical systems that that really sort of work in a silo. You know, they all kind of I mean, you know, they compete with each other. And it's and it's weird that in a in a situation like this, there's there's still competition. And 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 I think, you know, I mean, why didn't we create like a mass field hospital? Like, I mean, I mean, again, this is just like weird pie in the sky thinking. But like, what about like someplace like the IX Center where you set up a this is where all the coronavirus people go. That way you alleviate the pressure on 30 different medical systems who are putting staff in 30 different buildings at risk every day, you know, as, as opposed to having one place where everybody goes, that's big, that has the capacity to expand. Like I get it. It sounds like a huge undertaking, but at the end of the day, it would alleviate all of this pressure off these medical systems who have all of these buildings that do 6 billion other different medical things, you know, and, and, and and why haven't we created a a field hospital of sorts where we can go and address a surge like this? But we're that's not. A, that's a really interesting thought. I mean, as long as they don't play the IX amusement park jingle in the background, because I think that would increase <laughs> right. the death rate. But but that's an interesting thought because you're right. It would take it all out and put it in one place. The well, medical they, professionals would still be the ones that are treating it would be exposed, but all of the others would not be the. the and it, and the it's janitorial not, staff and the kitchen right. staff and all of those wouldn't be exposed right. to it. Right. You put you put all of your staff at risk when you're you're taking those patients in. So and 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 it's becoming a problem against you know for frontline workers. And so you know I they have hotels where they could sequester workers out there. I mean it's it's you know I just I feel like we're missing that kind of big thinking for these things these problems because we sort of deal with this in a you know in almost a capitalistic thinking, you know, it's like, well, how can every hospital weather this? And it's like, no, just come together and address the problem. Well, actually, they have that whole mothballed Terminal D at the <laughs> airport that they could use right? as as a supply depot. I mean, you're, you're right. That that would that would be a major step 
in getting ready. It just seems to me that despite what they keep telling us about the capacity problem, that that can't that can't be true. That the, uh, unless they can say the numbers will have to stop when we get to 10,000 because it can't expand much more quickly than that for some reason, which I'm not going to believe. Mm. Then with what we're seeing just in the math, we're going to run out of room. I mean, it's, it's inevitable until we get this thing under control and we show no signs of doing so. Interesting idea. That's uh, it's one. Maybe we should do a story that raises that question. You're listening to this week in the CLE. The Justice Center project has been stalled by the coronavirus, but some big decisions came down Thursday on the future of the jail and the courthouse. Laura Johnston, it's still a coronavirus story because these decisions have been stalled by the coronavirus. This is an all coronavirus episode. What's going on with the jail and the courthouse? Yeah, this has been a long time coming, but a committee of county officials, judges, and other parties agreed Thursday that a new jail should be built separately from a courthouse and outside of downtown Cleveland. So they also agree that if the courthouse part of the complex is replaced rather than renovated, and the courthouse should stay downtown. So we're looking at a separation of the two. They've been talking about this for two years, 12 people, and they still haven't decided a lot of things, including where they're going to get the 400 to 450 to 500 million dollars needed to build a jail, and that doesn't include the price of land. Uh, the city is probably going to have some level of partic- participation in this because they use the jail, but that is yet to be decided. Just one of the other money issues. So they're talking about a new jail. They could either build it with two levels on 15 acres or one level on 30 acres. They want about 1,600 beds, but that could be reconfigured if future jail populations increase or decrease. And the goal, of course, is to get them to decrease. Yeah. And the the big the big change is you don't want a tower. It's a much more efficient operation. You need fewer staff members if you have a flat jail. It's just an easier thing to to deal with. And you can't do that downtown because land is too expensive. Or maybe it, maybe it was expensive <laughs> before the coronavirus. Maybe there's lots of downtown land. But, um, but that's a smart move. It'll be interesting to see where they start to cite it because that doesn't have to be in Cleveland either. You could put that out on you know, Opportunity Parkway, although it's the wrong message for Opportunity Parkway. Um, we'll have to see. Keeping the courthouse downtown makes sense. But, you know, we probably should start advocating that if you're going to do that, you need to make parking free for your jurors. It's always it just boggled my mind that you're summoning people to do their civic duty. You pay them some tiny amount of money and the parking they have to pay to come downtown is higher than what you give them. That's just not right. You know, it's like the company store. They have to like park in the pit and like, you know, climb up that really steep hill in the middle of winter and it's icy and cold. Yeah. Nobody wants jury duty. But if you get it, you shouldn't, it shouldn't cost you something. It's, you know, the the government should foot the bill for the parking. And so if they're going to build something new, they ought to include enough parking where jurors don't have to pay for it. It's a, it's a bit of a scam. Okay. Well, it's a, it's interesting. Be, it's a good decision. We were waiting for that decision and hopefully they'll move a little more quickly. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine committed $30 million in federal coronavirus aid to local health departments Thursday. Jane Cahoon, the local health departments, we've been arguing they're doing a pretty shoddy job. We don't have any answers from them about why the surge is continuing. Why does Mike DeWine want to give them more money? Oh, this will make you so happy, Chris. They want them to hire contact tracers. The, The state's using $30 million in federal coronavirus aid 
to offer each of the 113 local health departments $200,000 to, to hire these contact tracers. And DeWine said uh, this will happen as fast as we can to surge into different counties as needed. So uh, we didn't hear back from Cuyahoga County when we asked them specifically how no, they were of course not. No, of course not. No, <laughs> uh, but this is money from the, the Federal CARES Act, the last coronavirus relief bill that Congress passed. You know what I wish? I wish he hadn't gone to the local health departments because they're proving so inept. I wish they would have created something new, which with, with the goal, hey, we're providing you this money. The goal is to figure out why we're having the surge. Wouldn't that be a thing? Yeah, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Instead of going with the people who have no clue why we're having the surge and are completely not transparent and responsive, do something with that money that might actually get results. I mean, this is, this is kind of feels like throwing good money after bad. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Former Ohio Health Director Amy Acton gave a talk this week, virtually, of course, to some people in Cleveland. Did she have any wisdom, Chris Warnowski, on the inexplicable coronavirus surge that we've been seeing since the beginning of October? Yeah, so she has been kind of uh, staying out of the limelight since she left the, her position at the state. And uh, she gave a uh, she spoke to the National Council of Jewish Women in Cleveland last night. And and she basically said, you know, that that the the soaring numbers of the coronavirus infection suggest that that the the toughest time of the virus is still ahead of us. And that, you know, in, in her, in, you know, sort of parroting what, you know, her sort of attitude toward things during her tenure as a health director, she said, uh, you know, I know how every single one of us is so exhausted and it feels like it, it will never end, but it will. And, you know, it is a very, you know, she has a very sort of interesting way of, of sort of making you feel like, you know, you, we can all get through this in, in, in a way that sort of seems absent in our in our government right now, it's it's a it's interesting. But she, uh, if you remember, she resigned back in uh, June 11th after working very hard for uh, many many months in in dealing with this, and then you know dealing with the backlash of closing down the state. Uh, and she's now the director of the Columbus Foundation initiative, Kind Columbus, which focuses on spreading kindness through the region. And that's, you know, that's more or less what she spoke about last night. I, you know, she was, I don't think she was there just to solely talk about the the coronavirus, but she did sort of say that, that, you know, we we're, we're in for a, a long few months. She's a class act. And a lot of people, including us have speculated that she left government because she was unhappy with the way and the rapidity with which the state was reopening uh, so, and she's never said that. She's never criticized anything the governor has done. She just left. Did she express in her talk any dismay um, at at the lack of action during this surge to try and slow it? Not really. I, you know, I, you know, it, this that's never really been her bag. You know what I mean? It, she she has always been very diplomatic about how about criticizing other people. I mean, if you go back and you look at her interview, the, the lone long form interview that she did since she resigned uh, was with the New Yorker. And she largely stayed away from any, any criticism of, of DeWine Houston and, and anybody uh, specifically, you know, I, I think, you know, she's maybe she's voiced some grievance, you know, about where we're headed, but you know, it's never pointed. It's never blame. It's never, 
it's never anything like that. I, you know, I think she has an overall sense, you know, from, from being in this position and then, you know, having to sort of learn to understand what it means early on. I, th- I think she, she has an understanding of, of where we're headed. And I think, you know, I, I just, it, Blaine has never really been kind of her thing. All right. Well, let me ask this. She, she was a doctor. She, mm-hmm. you know, lifetime doctor, the new health director in Ohio took Mike DeWine five months to find somebody to take the job is not a doctor. Did, did she discuss at all the abuse she took when people were outside her house, armed people were protesting because she had called for lockdowns? Did she talk about any of the distress of having her family exposed to that or did she stay away from that too? Um, she pretty much stayed away from that too. I, you know, I, I think if, I think she, you can kind of, it's interesting because you can kind of see her addressing those things in a roundabout way. I mean, her job, her job now is about kindness, you know, about spreading kindness and about spreading love. And, and it's, you know, who, who has encountered, more hate in this state in the past couple of months than her and Mike DeWine. You know, I mean, she had armed people walking outside of her house because, you know, they were asked to bear the indignity of wearing a piece of cloth over their mouth for a few months. And, and, you know, so it's, you know, I mean, she's in a job where she gets to go around and basically say like, I mean, she doesn't have to say out loud, like I'm a victim and I was treated poorly. Her, her whole sort of modus operandi now is like, be kind to each other. And, and you can sort of read between the lines on that, that it's, you know, I mean, she's experienced hate that I think people, well, you might experience this kind of hate being the editor, but, but, but. Yeah, I got it a little but, bit of it this week. Yes, indeed. But, but most Americans, I don't, you know, I mean, to, to go from being, I mean, that's the thing about medical professionals. I mean, most of them are pretty, what they bring to their job is relatively apolitical. And, and I think that that, you know, we've talked about this a lot is that, you know, part of what has broken down in this is 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 when it stops being apolitical and becomes a political issue is when you start seeing a lot of bad decision making take place. In her tenure, you know, she did a lot of like it, it's a lot of tough love stuff. You know, it's a lot of like, look, I know you don't want to do this, but this is what we have to do. And I think I honestly I you know, I think she did a better job of telegraphing that than the governor has because it's difficult to and I'm and I'm not saying this is an indictment of Mike DeWine. I'm just it's it's difficult to take a politician at face value that he's doing things for, you know, an altruistic reason. And so, you know, she, she sort of represented, I think a neutral zone for advice where you could look at her and say, well, okay, she doesn't have to run for office and she doesn't do this, but then you have people say, well, you're not elected. So why should I listen to you? You know, you don't have this authority to say this stuff. And so it's a, it's kind of a weird disadvantage that we have in our political system that like, yes, the buck stuff, Mike DeWine, but is Mike DeWine the person that should be out front leading the charge? And so he's, he is the elected governor, Jane Coons, Laura Johnson, you guys have been strangely quiet about this. Don't you, don't you remember (laughs) fondly Amy Acton being in front of us, talking to us about how to survive? Yeah. I was getting a wave of nostalgia while Chris was talking about, you know, Remember when DeWine was just all about the science and it was because of her. She really, you know, had his ear. He really immersed himself into what she was saying. And um, so, yeah, those those days are way in the past now. 
I was Laura? editing a timeline that Cameron Fields is putting together of of the coronavirus from March through now. And I was just reading old stories where Amy Acton was talking about Swiss cheese and looking out for each other. And not all heroes wear capes. And I was like, oh, I, I miss Amy Acton. <laughs> It'd be yeah, nice to I'm, see her I, again. I greatly miss Amy Acton. Her quiet voice. I'm but it's, but it's the thing it's 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 if you go back and you read that New Yorker thing she was one of the early people to really buckle down and try to get an understanding of what was like what was going to happen to us you know i hope at the end of the day it, and, and remember it came with criticism from us you know we were as as a as an entity i mean we were very critical of them early on and 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 and, and she came in and talked to us acknowledged we were right about the transparency and changed her ways. I mean, look, as, as public servants go, there there hasn't been much you could say is better. And, you know, I a little part of me hopes that Joe Biden figures out a way to bring her into the his administration because, you know, going around and pushing kindness is all well and good. But wouldn't it be great to have Amy Acton helping steer a federal policy for pandemics and the coronavirus? I mean, she's she just she was she was a hero. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're out of time. We're not going to get to the question about Mike DeWine finally saying Joe Biden won the presidential election. He did. Uh, But we've got to move on into the weekend. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back with another episode on Monday. Monday.